Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Well, hello, citizens of Ostend. Uh, I am Tom Fordyce. I am Katie Puckrick. And we are here, and I'm delighted we are here, for the very first ever live recording of our podcast, We Didn't Start the Fire. Now, if you aren't familiar with how this podcast works. Let me explain. Oh, I'm so happy because I've gotten a little hazy. It's after been my, so long. Well, there's been a little bit of Belgian beer. It has. And there's been a lot of sand in my teeth. So I need some clarifications, Tom. Please help me. Okay, so We Didn't Start the Fire is, of course, a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. It's also our podcast that is a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest, and most beautiful stories that have shaped our world. So, Billy Joel drew our crazy route map. We just follow wherever it goes. Cold War, hot movie stars. Big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. Katie, school is out, Billy is in, and we are in Austin. We are in Austin. I don't think I'm going to get over this in a real hurry scurry, because first of all, I thought it was springtime, and guess what? It's gale force winds out there, and I'm five feet tall. So you're lucky that I'm not just bobbing out to the North Sea right now. Yeah, we have enjoyed being blown round Ostend, Katie, haven't we, in the last couple of days? I've particularly enjoyed it because, as you know, I have had a fascination with Ostend ever since I discovered that Marvin Gaye spent some time here in the 80s. Did he ever? And he was inspired to write a very, very sexual sexual song because this place is just pulsing with throbbing vibes. I mean, can't you feel it? Sexual healing is the song we're talking about here. So that is Marvin Gaye. And of course, we are here at the DS Podcast Festival. Um, Katie, today's topic, if you will. Today's topic, it's episode 81. The topic is Belgians in the Congo. And we are going to need some assistance from y'all. Yes, because, Katie, it sounds very strange to my ears that you are just saying the topic of today's episode because Ostendians, when we do this podcast, we begin by using these things, which the sharp-eyed and the musical amongst you will recognize as kazoos. We use kazoos to do the chorus of Billy Joel's song, and then we sing our way through the relevant verse until we reach the lyric in question. Now, how are we going to do this, Katie? Shall we kazoo? Then maybe we sing the verse. Yeah. When we get to the point where we are going to sing Belgians in the Congo, we would like you to join us. The way we would like you to sing it is like this. Belgians in the Congo, 
Because that's how Billy sings it. So, Katie, shall we go? And, we're, and we'll do a point. We'll do a really dramatic point. Okay. Buddy Holly, Ben Hur, Space Monkey, Mafia, Hula Hoop, Castro, Edsel is a no go, U2, Sigmund Ray, Paola, and Kennedy, Chubby Checker, Psycho, Belgians in the Congo. Yeah, all right. <laughs> That'll do. So, as we've experienced on previous episodes of this podcast, Billy Joel is a mercurial, quixotic Pied Piper. He's taken us to Hollywood, he's taken us to Red China, he's taken us to the moon. But today, he has landed us in Ostend for the lyric slash topic, Belgians in the Congo. In June 1960, after 52 years of rule, Belgium granted independence to its colony in the Congo. Now, the colony was established by one of history's most brutal rulers, the Belgian king, Leopold II, who purloined the vast landmass along the Congo River as his private domain. So from 1885 to 1908, loot flowed out of the jungle and into colonial Belgium. Now, estimates of deaths during that period range from 10 million to 15 million Africans, and the debate whether it constituted a genocide continues. Belgium has only in recent years begun to address its role in the horrors of the Congo. As befits such a hefty topic, we have not one, but two experts to help us understand this sobering subject. The first is the esteemed Belgian historian and prize-winning author of many books, including Congo, the epic history of a people. Please welcome David von Reiburg. Thank you. And I am delighted to say that our second guest is Ren Kiambote. Ren has been a policy and communications advisor to the Belgian government, advising specifically on policy around decolonization. She is the host of her own podcast, Yaya Talks. She lives in Brussels. Her parents are from the Congo. Welcome, Ren. Thank you. <laughs> Now, Ren, before we dive into this deep and very dark topic, there is something that Katie and I have noticed as we have been blown around Ostend by the winds off the North Sea in the last couple of days, and that is that there is an awful lot of Leopold wherever you go. There is a Leopold statue, there is a Leopold park, there is a Leopold racing course, and even the hotel that Katie and I are staying in appears to have been built with King Leopold's loot. The legacy of Belgium in the Congo seems to be everywhere still. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, it's the same thing in Brussels. It's the same thing in Antwerp. If you know what happened, if you know the history, you can't look past it. You can't look past the connection that there is still today between Belgium and, and Congo. Um, so, I mean, at the same time, it's very sad, but sometimes I think... You know, as I said, you're welcome. It's something that we need to keep on reflecting on because thanks to what happened, Ostend is such a great city. Brussels is such a great city with great parks, great buildings. Um, so yeah, we need to keep that in mind. Mm, absolutely. So David, I'm wondering, uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of uh, King Leopold's uh, activities, behaviors, and legacy, 
Can you give us a sense of the lay of the land uh, in the Congo River region pre-colonialization? Because it was a land of so many different people, cultures, languages. It wasn't just one country that was mushed together then in the future. No, it's, it's a vast extent of land. It's 80 times the size of Belgium. If you look at European colonial histories, I think this, this is the one where the colonizing power and the colony was really way above its weight category. Yeah. Uh, 80 times the size of Belgium, as big as Western Europe. And it's quite important not to start with colonial history. There was history in the region well before the arrival of Europeans, at least 100,000 years, perhaps even much more of human history. And if you, look at the, if you look at its history, I mean, it's long, it's, it's complex. Uh, at the eve of, of uh, Belgian colonization or the eve of Leopold's entry into the territory, you can talk about a region where about 400 different ethnic identities are living. The country is like balloon-shaped and the northern part is mostly tropical rainforest. The southern thir third is savanna. Um, the equator runs through it, and uh, if you look at it, I mean, the place already had been in contact with Europeans ever since 1500, when the Portuguese first arrived, and played a very important role in, in, the, in the slavery trade, the transatlantic slavery trade. So, an enormous stretch of land, which hadn't gotten any political entity of its own. All of it belongs to the drainage basin of the Congo River, which is a very expensive way of saying that every raindrop that fell on that territory and went into a river would eventually end up into the Congo River and go to the Atlantic Ocean. So it had a cartographic entity, but for people on the ground, it didn't feel as an entity to start with. They lived in much smaller uh, communities. I say smaller, but I just add one thing. In the southern part, in Katanga, and even in the western part, you had kingdoms, pre-colonial African kingdoms, the size of Ireland. So we're talking about fairly vast political entities. There's something that's confused me, David, as I've been reading about this topic, and that's that when King Leopold decides that he would like a colony, he is almost on his own. The Belgian government doesn't want a colony. That's absolutely right. He was 24 years old when he had a stone engraved and given to a Belgian minister saying, il faut à la Belgique une colonie. Belgium needs a colony. He was 24 then. And for him, it, it was like the normal thing to do. As, you, as many new nations from the 19th century did, the, the kingdom of the Netherlands was a new country, and later Italy and Germany were newly made countries, and they felt like in order to be to have some status, in order to have some importance, you need an overseas adventure, just like the French and the British already had. Leopold II had this vision like, this country is small, it even has gotten smaller through the war with the Netherlands, and in that small territory, tensions are building up between Catholics and liberals, between capitalists and proletarians, and between Flemish and Walloons. And so, in order to get rid of all these social tensions that were building up in this small territory, we needed a colonial project that was going to unify the nation in a glorious endeavor. I mean, that was the sort of rationale. He, he started to look for a colony on all corners of the earth. Uh, he was looking at Borneo, Sumatra. Uh, he inquired whether the Philippines were not for sale. And it was only in the 18... 
in the 1860s, he got really interested uh, in 1860s, 1870s, he got really interested in, in Central Africa. And of course, it's kind of an eeny, meeny, miny, mo situation because he hasn't been to any of these places. He's no. just looking at a map and like, hmm, maybe this could be pretty, this could be cute. Uh, give us a sense of who he was. Uh, I read that he was described as a young man by his cousin, Queen Victoria, as, quote, unfit idle and unpromising and heir apparent as ever was known. And uh, apparently as a king, he didn't dispute charges in a London court that he had sex with child prostitutes. So it sounds like he was quite a colorful character, uh, to, to put say it, the least. to say the least. Yeah. He was, when he started the colonial uh, adventure, he was in his early 50s, started growing this massive beard that became only more important as, as he got older. What's ambitious? Uh, clearly, um, the sort of politician that this country rarely ever had, to be quite honest. I mean, in a country where modest politics is like the rule of the day, here's a guy with a vision that exceeds uh, his, well, it seems as if the ego was bigger than the country. And, and so he, this idea was, he, he was a curious, he had a, he had a limp, some, some of his behavior have, have been explained by referring to that. Um, but indeed, uh, quite a colourful character, to say the least. Ren, what was life like um, for the people of the Congo once the colony has begun? It seems like a particularly, even in an era of brutal colonial regimes, the regime that Leopold puts in place seems particularly horrific. From my knowledge, I know that life, um, because my grandma, she, she witnessed that. She's 94 now, um, and she's actually a Kimbangist, which is a religion um, who is very pan-Africanist. So at that moment, they were super against everything colonial, everything uh, white, Western European, etc. cetera. Um, so what I've heard from my family background is they they hated it they hated it because of the condescending way that white people would treat them um some of my family members were also boys so b yeah boi i think it's spelled then um meaning that they were the the servants of the house uh, small children who would hold the purses of the lady of the house or uh carry the kids uh like you know piggy ride oh piggyback ride yeah yes. piggyback ride mm -hmm. those kinds of things so um there are some people still till this day who are the age of my grandma who um have a different type of uh, memory about what happened at a moment. They are more positive, um, whereas my grandma, she's super negative. Like she asks me sometimes questions when when I see her. She would ask me like, "Do you in in Brussels? Do you walk on the same streets as white people?" Because for her, it's so she doesn't see a lot of you know different ethnicities. So for her, it's really strange to think that her granddaughter uh, mingles with white people, that I work for white people, and that it's not in a context of that they are exploiting me. I just work like normal people, and they pay me, and that's it. So she asked me questions like, and do you interact? Are they nice to you? She asked me over and over again, are they nice to you? It's different for a lot of people, but overall we can tell from what's written in history and um, what people still still say till this day that it was horrible. Yeah. It was horrible. People's hands were cut off. 
that is the one thing that the most people remember. Um, so yeah, you can't you can't say that col that colonialism at that point was something good for me at least. You can't say that. And even though uh, for Belgium it was it was great because look at look at Belgium now. You know, people were dying from from cholera and the money that it generated. It made Belgium the country that it is today at the cost of people dying, millions of people dying um, at that moment. And what is funny, quote unquote, is that history is still repeating itself. You know, Congo is one of the, the country that provides the most of um, minerals um, and everything that we use to keep our electronics from blowing up in our faces comes from the Congo. And at this point, we're, you know, we are in the climate change and we're thinking about all those things and we want to electrify everything. But still, we manage to not see what it will cost to... Uh, people across the sea. Right, so a human cost as well as the cost to exactly. Mother and, Earth. And for me, in a way, in a way, that is neo-colonialism. Mm. Yeah. It's quite striking, David, that this is an era of colonial exploitation across the world. The British have colonies and are exploiting them. The Dutch have colonies and are exploiting them. And the Portuguese are doing the same. So it was really striking to me to learn that there was a report in 1904, the Casement Report, where these other colonial powers were horrified in turn by the conditions that they found in the Congo. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the, the Casement Report was very important. There had been activists claiming that what was going on in the Congo was problematic, but Casement was a well-established, highly respected British diplomat who, drew, who wrote a report on the atrocities that were taking place. And also, how bad does it have to be? I mean, because it's pretty bad in all these other places that Tom just named. Mm. So this goes to show you that was what was happening in the Congo, the Free State of Congo, was just audacious and appalling. Well, it, it was not a state to start with and it was definitely not free and the atrocities took place on a, on, a, on, a, on a massive scale because everybody was paid in function of the amount of rubber they could generate and there was like this bonus structure in the colonial economy and so it meant that there's this pyramid from the royal palace in Brussels down to the, the, the rubber harvester in his village along the Congo River. And the, and, they all, and the harvester had to give a certain amount of rubber and then the collector needed to have a certain amount because his salary was based on function of what he was generating and he had to give it to his white supervisor. I mean, all the way up, there was this scheme that was basically made for, for abuse and coercion. And so the Caseman report went in and... Into detail and, and, and stipulated what happened. And even if you look at, if you look at Heart of Darkness written by Joseph Conrad, he was there in 1890, just before the rubber craze began. And he was already documenting how bad colonial economy was when we were just talking about ivory. I mean, Colonel Kurtz at the end of uh, Heart of Darkness, he's not a rubber collector, he's an ivory collector, he's an ivory trader. But even there, I mean, Conrad was disgusted by what he had seen by traveling up to the Congo River himself. Mm. And so Leopold didn't have any idea about what was going on or perhaps uh, even more appallingly, didn't care. 
on the outside again he said that this was appalling and this could not be the case and he would not tolerate mm. and then he received reports of his best rubber collector of all uh, a man called Fieves uh, a guy from a village in the French speaking part of Belgium and uh, and he was absolutely appalling i mean he would kill up to 150 people per month and send out expeditions killing i mean burning villages, killing a lot, a lot of people. And when Leopold got a report about his misbehavior, well, he did what Catholic bishops did when they heard about a priest being a pedophile. They put him in a different parish. And this is exactly what, what he did, knowingly that this man might restart yes. his activities. But there were very few Europeans. And so Leopold said, like, well, uh, we still need him. We put him in a different spot, which doesn't seem to solve the problem. And even just as a businessman, you'd think that Leopold would go, wait a minute, I need all of those people to generate all of this wealth and treasure. But yeah. he didn't really think it through, huh? <laughs> This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
So the, the period that Billy Joel is referring to at this point in the song, Katie, is the independence in 1960. So we need to dive into that period. But before we do, David, give us an idea of what life was like between the two world wars mm. in the Congo. So the, the, the time of Leopold II ends in 1908. That's when it becomes the Belgian Congo. Uh, and on paper, again, everything was going to be done differently, more humanely. But as, as Ren just said, I mean, her, the story of her grandmother is fascinating because the Kimbangis movement in the 1920s and 30s was this fascinating uh, African church. I mean, I, I went to the place, I interviewed a lot of people there. The way they were being prosecuted by, by Belgian colonialists. I mean, um, the story of her grandmother, absolutely true and verifiable. I mean, I've heard many of those stories. There is this idea that once Leopold II was gone and until the late 1950s, everything was quiet and Belgian colonialism, you know, ha had the best of its intentions and functioned to enhance people's livelihoods, etc. Far from it. There was a lot of violence in the 1920s and the 1930s, but the social gap, between Europeans and Africans did not get smaller. It even got bigger after the Second World War. And the reason was that after the Second World War, for the first time, white women could arrive as well. And all of a sudden, European colonizers would be living in white families. And that's where you start seeing the beginning of a sort of de facto apartheid regime. On Sunday afternoons, people would play tennis and have barbecues and drink martinis and was much less contact. So the gap was actually growing as history was going on rather than diminishing. David, let's talk about this period just before independence because there is a vast independence movement sweeping across all the colonies and the former colonies. We see it in India and Pakistan. We see it with the Dutch colonies. This is happening in sort of 1945, 1946. Why is the process slower for Belgium and the Congo? Oh, it's much slower in most of the African countries. I just finished a book on the Indonesia and the, the, the former Dutch colony, which declared itself independent in 1945. In, in Congo, nobody was, was thinking about it. And think most of the people in Congo were kept away from global affairs and global news. At the day of independence in Congo on the 30th of June, 1960, the country, the size of Western Europe, had 16 people with a college degree. This is extraordinary. And so news uh, of what was happening abroad was not coming in at all. I think what was very important was the Bandung Conference in Indonesia in 1955, where some African leaders had been. Nasser had been there from Egypt. People from, uh, um, from Ghana had been there. And when they got back, the, the, the spirit of Bandung, it was called, this decolonizing energy was there. And Nasser particularly started broadcasting radio programs south towards the south as well. And so in, in the north of Africa, it started to move in, in, in Morocco, in Algeria, and Tunisia. And in 1958, December 1958, Kwame Nkrumah uh, in, in Ghana uh, organizes a summit, a sort of African Bandung conference. Bandung was a place in Indonesia, and he was repeating that three years later. And Lumumba went there. And that was the moment when he got all of a sudden aware of what was happening outside of Africa. And most of the African countries, sub-Saharan African countries, only got independent in 1960. Uh, in that year, almost, I think, 18 countries got independent, which was an, at an incredible rate. But until that rate, it went, things went very, very slowly. 
We've heard his name a couple of times already, David. Um, tell us a little bit more about Patrice Lumumba. Patrice Lumumba came from uh, the middle of the country, actually. I've, I've been to the, to the village where he was born and met a number of his uh, people who had known them back then, people who were still alive and had memories of him. And much to my surprise, <laughs> they told me, whoa, Pat Patrice, he was different from all the rest of us. He, he dressed nicely, he wore shoes, he asked the, girl, the girls to polish his shoes, and he told everyone he was a white person and was going to be a white person. Sounds a bit strange, given his later role, until you realize, if you look at different uh, colonial leaders uh, uh, or, or anti-colonial activists, uh, Mahatma Gandhi was wearing a three-piece suit when he was living in London and trying to learn to play the violin. Uh, and uh, Sukarno in, in Indonesia also strived to become as European as possible. You often see that the main leaders of the decolonization movement were in their early days striving for full recognition and to be considered equals by the colonizers. And each of them has this one moment where they realize whatever we do, how many efforts we, 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 we perform, we will never be fully considered as equals. And so that turned them into this incredibly flamboyant, charming, incredibly well-spoken activist who was a very good campaigner with rhetorical skills. He could mesmerize an audience for, for hours. I think you could compare him in terms of the, the energy of, of his speeches is something like Muhammad Ali. You know, the boldness, the things he dared to say towards a population that had been mostly fairly meek in, in colonial times because they had been kept fairly outside of world politics because they had been, uh, you know, the education had been limited to primary school. It was a sort of colonial trinity where the church and the capital and the colony worked together to keep people ignorant so they would be good workers in the mines. And all of a sudden, there is this one guy who dares to speak up. And, uh, and he, in, in, in the run-up towards the independence movement, his, his role was key, and he was imprisoned for that as well. And in January 1960, some Congolese leaders come together in Brussels to talk about the round table conference to talk about. And the biggest debate is like, when are we going to be independent? 1985, way too far. Uh, people were talking about 1965, 1961. And much to their surprise, the negotiators arrived at convincing the Belgian uh, negotiators that independence would be granted four months later, on the 30th of June, 1960. And Lumumba was still in prison when the conference started, but the other African delegates really wanted him to be there. So he was taken out of prison and flown into Brussels to come and talk. And so he became this key person of the entire independence movement. Ren, it seems that the death of Patrice Lumumba is a turning point for the Congo. I don't know if you can tell us about these rumours or perhaps these truths about the involvement of the Belgian government, the possible involvement of the Belgian government. It's and not a rumour. It's fact, is it? Tell, yeah. us, tell us more. Um, well, it's fact. I, obviously, I wasn't born then. Um, but what I've read from the book from Ludo de Witte, uh, amongst others, is that the Belgian government, together with the CIA, they had a direct involvement. They basically asked to execute him. And then that's just another element that you just, you know, as a young Congolese, I'm so connected with Congo. Uh, my family still lives there. And 
you know, everyone says all the time, Congo is such a great country, it's so big, it has uh, a lot of minerals, a lot of natural resources, but yet we are still in this impasse where the country is not moving forward. So, yeah, I mean, reading all of those things and knowing that it is actually how it happened, he was killed, he was murdered, and then knowing that the people who were involved in that murder, they can still hump around, uh, hump around jump around, they have children, um, you know, Gerard Suto was the one who kept the teeth, because he was the one who put them in, uh, in the bin with the acid, and... Wait, explain that? So if I got this right, eh? David, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Gerard Soute was a officer um, for, I don't, was he? F- in Katanga, he was in Katanga. Yeah, in Katanga, exactly. And he was, um, he got the assignment to uh, chop Lumumba and his partner up, his political partner up, and to put them in acid. And... Destroy the evidence, so to Des- speak. Destroy the evidence. Yeah. And he, he lived a happy life. I don't know how it is to mentally live with that, yeah. but I worked at the VRT. I worked with his granddaughter, and it's just so crazy. <laughs> yes, but it's just so crazy to see how we are connected, and there's so much evil that has been done from one side, and but there are no repercussions. No consequences. Exactly. Whatsoever. What did she say about her grandfather? I mean, the only thing that I... I didn't even know that she was the granddaughter until I saw a, um, an expert on in. You know, it's like a sketch, and then you tell your story, your history about your father, your mother, and your grandparents. And so she was talking about the fact that um, that's her grandparent, And they asked her in the interview, how do you feel knowing that your grandfather did that? And she defended him. I can understand. She said, he's a great person. Um, What happened then? I wasn't there. But I just know that he was a great grandfather to me. She needs to tell herself that just to get through her day, I guess. I mean... (laughs) It was at that time. I don't know what choices her grandfather had, and I can never hold it against her because it's not her fault. It's not her her mother's fault, which is the the daughter of her grandfather, but it's the politicians. It just goes to show you how tangled all these different histories are Mm -hmm. and the fact that you come into contact with your history, into contact with somebody like her, with her history. And pulling back to the bigger picture, of course, what we see is that, of course, during the Cold War, uh, there's America uh, interfering because they're feeling like, well, we don't want this country to be uh, falling into the hands of the commies, so we have to keep them pure, the purity test. And, um, of course, there's never any sensitivity to what is best for the country. And um, it continues to fall apart, doesn't it? There's still continued violence. And what happens next? I think after the independence, so Lumumba became the first prime minister and Joseph Kazavubu was the first president. Uh, And in a couple of weeks, the country starts falling apart. There's a mutiny in the army. Uh, People are asking for higher pay and higher ranks. Um, And then the Belgian army... 10 days after independence, kicks in again, which is 
the biggest military blunder I think this country has ever done. Ten days after you grant a country independence, you basically unleash your military, first to protect Belgian citizens because riots were taking place, but then basically to start recolonizing. And Lumumba and Kazavubu were obviously completely overwhelmed by this, and they asked the, the support of the United Nations to start with on the 12th of July. And on the same day, the Security Council comes together. It's incredible. I mean, they, they've been acting very, very fast. And in the same night of the 13th of July, a first resolution is voted against Belgium. But for Lumumba and Kazavubu, the resolution, the UN resolution, doesn't go far enough. And the next day, they contact the Russians. Because the Russians were in the United Nations Security Council, the Russians had been backing the Congolese totally. And contacting the Russians sent a shiver through every American spine. The important thing is, the Americans had won the Second World War thanks to the uh, uh, nuclear bombs on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the uranium used in those bombs by the Americans in the Far East came from Congolese uranium mines. And so for the Americans, it was absolutely crucial that this country with these important uranium mines were not going to fall into the hands of the Soviets. And so from that moment on, uh, the Americans were basically trying everything to do everything they can to stop Lumumba. And uh, I mean, uh, it's quite right what, what uh, Ren has just said. The, the CIA was actively involved with trying to, to kill Lumumba even before he got killed in January 1961. Already in September, October, there were several plots to kill him. And one of them was even included even a tube of toxic uh, toothpaste. So there were active attempts to, to eliminate uh, Lumumba. And so uh, after Lumumba is killed, the tension of the Cold War is still there. Until then, the Cold War had only been taking place, obviously, in Europe, but with the Russians having their uh, sphere of influence uh, until Berlin, and then secondly, mostly in Korea. And so what happened in the Congo crisis was more than just a crisis between Congolese and Belgians. It was really a world crisis and it could have been the beginning of the Third World War. It was the first time the Cold War unleashed on African territory. I'm listening to this, Ren, and I'm almost having a sliding doors moment in my mind where I'm thinking, how would the Congo be at several points in history had it not been for the intervention of, at the start, Leopold, um, for the intervention of the CIA. Do you ever find yourself thinking the same way, thinking what else might have been an alternative present for the Congo? Absolutely, absolutely. As, you know, as a person from Congolese descent, I, I am proud no matter what state the country is in, but it's very painful to just see that a lot of histories, events written in books, uh, we still talk about it day to day, um, have had an influence on the state of the country right now. I mean, coulda, woulda, shoulda, we don't know what could have happened if this or that had been, had been changed. Um, the only thing that we can do, and that is something that Congolese people are so good at being hopeful, um, resilient, and that's the only way to survive coup after coup after yeah. coup. Mm. Gosh. Ren, has the Belgian government ever addressed or apologized for the atrocities during Leopold's reign? 
They have not officially apologized. They, um, how do you say this in English? They presented their excuses. Can I the, say it like the, that? The king has expressed his deepest regrets yes. about what happened both during the time of Leopold II and during the Belgian colon, uh, colonial time after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there has been official excuses for what has happened to uh, Métis children, which are children who were born from Congolese parents and um, European parents, mostly Belgians at that particular moment, because they were taken away from their parents, from their mothers, mm. uh, and taken here into Belgium, and all ties were cut with their Congolese family. So. That is one thing that the Belgian government has done, really said we're sorry and we want to make it better. But also, until now, there hasn't been anything politically, you know, no restitution, no anything. Is there a push uh, from people of Congolese descent in Belgium for this, for restitution or for acknowledgement or for apology? Absolutely, absolutely. But what we see now is that everything is being mixed. We're in this decolonial phase of Europe, if I can say it like that. And so people are shouting Black Lives Matter on the on one side and, uh, you know, dethrone Leopold on the other side. And it's very important to categorize what we mean by decolonization. Um, and restitution is can be a part of that, but that is not decolonization. When I speak about decolonization in the context of Europe, I mean that I want kids going through um, to kindergarten until university. I want them to know the history of their country, the full history. And that is a part of decolonization because what we see is people don't realize how much Congo has done for this country. And that has an impact on how um, we treat each other, you mm. know? Yes, it's definitely so enlightening. Um, one of the kind of interesting twists, a little tangy, a little poignant, when you were telling me backstage about um, uh, one of the protests took the form of a Leopold statue having its hand cut off, like the victims mm -hmm. of the, the rubber exploitation. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. It's not Leopold's hand. Mm -hmm. It's one of the statues next to Leopold's, okay. which is not far, I think, that side, mm -hmm. if you go to the shore. Okay, uh, so just down the street here in Austin. Yeah, exactly. Ten minutes walking, you can see the statue of Leopold, which I don't know why he's always on a horse. <laughs> he's, he's running away from people who don't have enough hands who are coming to get him. Yes, in Brussels, he's, always, he's also on a horse um, on the most you know, specific um, places in Brussels. Yes, so his hand was cut off by some activists. Um, and what the activists were saying is, we cannot speak about vandalization anymore. This is an act of protest. And as an act of protest, it is important to recognize it as it is and not to immediately wanting to... Um, make the statue whole again, quote unquote. So for example, with the, with the hand being cut off, just leave it as is and explain why this hand was cut off, which is also a form of decolonization and um, explaining what is happening amidst um, the community. I'm wondering, uh, in the interest of 
making sure that everybody is on the same page and understands what's gone on in the past. Do you feel like it's important that the Congolese, the up to and beyond 10 million Congolese who died as a result of Leopold, if those deaths are labeled a genocide, is that important to you? I mean, I think it would be something, but what does it really change? It doesn't change anything. And same with decolonization. That's why people always call it symbolic. It's really symbolic, the decolonization of the public space, because in, it doesn't really change anything inherent. It doesn't change the fact that black and brown people still have less opportunity to get a job, any type of job, or to get housing more easily. It doesn't change that. And the decolonization of our mindset and how we treat people is more important to me uh, than having Leopold II dethroned because, I mean, at the end of the day, he's a statue and he doesn't pay my bills, but I want to have a job, any type of job that I can pay my bills with, being a black person. Well, thank you so much, Ren, Giambote, and David von Rayburg. Thank Been you. a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Now, Katie, ordinarily when we're doing this podcast in our cozy little London studio, it is a this point that we ask ourselves has Billy done a good thing in including this particular topic in his song and you know what I've been thinking as Ren and David have told us so many fascinating things about this topic I'm pretty impressed by Billy here I'm pretty impressed by Billy because he's some schnook from Long Island <laughs> and um, you know you think sure he knows a lot about baseball and maybe he likes the Beatles and television and okay he mentioned landing on the moon these are things that Americans normally talk about but I think he's quite a sophisticated fellow if he's directing the pop picker's attention to certain events that happened in years past which include atrocities in the Congo. Katie, I agree with you 100%. And my next question for you is, where is Billy taking us next time around? Well, Tom, that depends. If you subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on Apple Podcasts and are therefore a member of the Fire Friday Club, we have released this early for you lucky legends, which means your next episode is Bridge on the River Kwai. Yes, but if you have waited until Billy intended it, because this is, after all, episode 81, and you are subsequently listening in August, your next episode is Hemingway. So many options, Tom. And if you've only just tuned in and you don't know where to start, you can check out some of our previous episodes. Einstein was a good one. North Korea was pretty good. I'm pretty hot on Khrushchev. I know he looked like a giant human potato, but still, he had a little twinkle. Yes, Stalin, Marilyn Monroe were good ones, weren't they, Katie? Yeah. Or you could get Spacey with Sputnik. I like it because it rhymes with my surname, Puckrick. And finally, a big thanks to everyone here at the DS Podcast Festival for having us. Thank you to all you guys here in the audience for coming along. It's been wonderful, Katie, hasn't it, being doing the very first yeah. live edition of our little podcast? I feel like, uh, I feel excited. And also, it's so fancy, and we had to get two guests to deal with it, to contend with all of you. So it was a lot. And on that note, from Katie and from me, thanks for coming, and we shall be back on your podcast apps very soon.
Crowd Network. A place where you belong. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.